This is our number three of the John and Leah show. This is the program where we talk about the news of the week and the events of our often bizarre lives and where we provide you with a three-hour oasis of rationality in the desert of insanity, which is the American media, cultural, and political landscape. My name is John Ziegler. My co-host is Leah Brandon. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. In the next segment, we'll start to get into uh, other topics, almost all of which are college-related as colleges and high schools and schools around the country get back in session. There's some news involving that that I want to get to. By the way, speaking of college, Leah, uh, how about that Notre Dame-Texas game that ended about 15 minutes ago? must have been really boring. You know, it seemed like it seemed like a pretty good game when I when I left it. I don't have a television in the studio. Turns out Texas wins 50-47 in double overtime. Sounds like a real yawner. Yes. Uh, um, apparently, the, the they're key, carrying the coach off the field. Apparently, the key play was with a couple minutes left in the game. Texas appeared to take the lead, and then the extra point got blocked, and Notre Dame recovered and returned it all the way for two points to tie things up. That's how it got into overtime. But then Texas ends up winning in double overtime. Their freshman quarterback playing his first game ever from Texas looks like a dud and uh so texas looks like a team to uh keep an eye on the 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 most important part of this is that at least this year we won't have to go through what has become a a routine ritual recently of when will notre dame finally be exposed and dropped out of the national championship race right Uh, since they lose early uh, that won't be a major issue uh, although their schedule is such that uh, they could make a comeback, but my my guess is that uh, at least we don't have to worry about them being seven or eight and zero with a lousy cupcake schedule. Or I mean, uh, their coattails are never ending. Well, because they're good for ratings. I mean, ratings are everything, and Notre Dame is good for ratings. Ratings drive the world now, and we've seen it obviously in the presidential race, which is our segue to um, the state of that race. Now, I have been as outspoken as probably anybody in the world <laughs> that Donald Trump is going to lose to Hillary Clinton. And I'm standing by that. However, there has been a small adjustment to the official John and Leah show odds at freespeechbroadcasting.com. The chances of Donald Trump winning are now 10% as opposed up to— Up from 5 Up from 5%. They're now that's 10%. That's a big jump. That's a hundred percent jump. That's a doubling. That's right. At this pace, if he remains on this pace, he'll be <laughs> over fifty percent by next month. Um, so, you know, I am trying to be as open-minded about this whole thing as I can. Yo, the, I can tell. I am, Leah. I, I look. I calls him as I sees him. Now, look. A lot of people will say, John, how is that possible that Hillary is a ninety percent shot when Trump is closing the gap? My gosh. Hannity and and Drudge are having virtual orgasms over over the fact that he's closing and that he's surging. No, 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 no. Hold on a second. Let, let's be very clear here. While the, the the polls have absolutely narrowed, especially the national polls, and in fact, this weird Los Angeles Times poll actually has Trump ahead by a couple points. But I'm not buying the methodology on that poll, so I I basically discard the Los Angeles Times poll. But there's no question that from a national perspective, that the, the, the 
difference between Hillary and Trump has shrunk. There's no question about that. Now, why is that? If it was because Trump was expanding his vote and his percentage of the vote, I would say, hmm, we got something here. That's not what's happening. There is zero evidence to this point that anything has changed regarding what Donald Trump's potential percentage of the vote is. He is still well within margin of error of where he has been ever since the end of the Democratic Convention, which is in a two-person race, he is lucky to get 41-42% of the vote. In a four-person race, he's lucky to get 38% of the vote. That appears to be his ceiling under those two circumstances. And for those who say, well, John, it's going to be a four-man race. Why don't they, why don't you just worry about that number? Yeah, but Gary Johnson's not going to make the debate, neither is Jill Stein. So statistically and historically, their vote totals are going to fade because once they're not in the big show, people aren't going to take them seriously and they're not going to get any traction. They're not going to have any oxygen. They're not going to have any money. And and human nature being human nature, people are going to vote for one of the two people who can actually win or they're not going to vote at all. So the percentages for Johnson and Stein, in my view, are going to go way down unless something bizarre happens. I actually wrote a column, which you can check out at freespeechbroadcasting.com, about how if Donald Trump, if I was running Donald Trump's campaign, one of the things I would be doing right now is I would be championing the cause for Gary Johnson to be in the debates because I think Gary Johnson helps Donald Trump on numerous levels. Uh, So check that out at freespeechbroadcasting.com. But to the point of what's actually happening here, there's no evidence that Trump's vote is expanding. Hillary is such a horrendous, horrible, pathetic candidate that she cannot put Trump away, and her vote appears to be shrinking somewhat. Now, why is that happening? It could be, though I'm skeptical of this, that some of this email coverage is finally sinking through. But in the middle, in the middle of summer, I just don't buy that. I just don't. I, I don't think anybody it's too involved. I agree with you. I, there's no Shazam moment there. So, especially during summertime, I, I just don't believe that that persuadable independent. Voters who are nonpartisan, and let's remember who those people are. Idiots! I, I just find it hard to believe that the email thing is finally convincing people. What I think is happening here is a natural evaporation of the high of Hillary's convention. People have forgotten Obama's speech endorsing her. They've forgotten that she looked okay in her convention speech and everybody else that was backing her and that they put on a pretty good show. So the, the, the drug effect of that has worn off. I also am suspicious. See, and, I, and this is really important. I, I do not believe in conspiracies at all and hardly anything. I've worked in polling. I don't believe that most pollsters are involved in conspiracies, although I do think they want publicity for their polls. And I do think they want to get linked on Drudge, some of them. And I do think that if it's a lot better for them, especially if they're connected to a media outlet, if there's a news hook and Hillary, you know, still maintaining an eight to 10 point lead gives you no news hook. So there's an incentive here for two things, the race to change because change means news and the race to be close, which is good for ratings. Because if this thing was a blowout, the ratings would start to tank and nobody in the news media wants that. So what's happening? This is all very easily done from a pollster standpoint. And I I believe that this is what's occurring. I believe 
that some of these pollsters are making it slightly more difficult for the very soft Hillary supporter to be put into the Hillary category. All you got to do to make the race change is if is tell the person taking the phone call, if someone is iffy and not certain about it, put them in the undecided column. Because remember, the Trump people are not iffy. Not at all. <laughs> the Trump people, you're either with him or you're not. Or you're against him. Okay, so... So all Don't you, let the terrorists win. Right. So all you got to do, if you're a pollster that wants a result that's both newsy and plausible, all you got to do is say, make it just a little bit more difficult for people to get into the Hillary or Trump column and easier to be designated as undecided. Because then here's what happens. If you come out with a poll right now where Hillary's lead is down to 41-39, oh my gosh, it's only a two-point race. And let's say it turns out Hillary wins, I don't know, 53-42 in a total blowout. You can still say, well, that poll was perfectly plausible. It's just that all the almost all yeah. the undecideds, they went for Hillary. You see where I'm going with that? So it's not the margin. It's where Trump is. So here's the bottom line. Unless and until you start seeing major national polls or polls in important states, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida, North Carolina. Those are the four must-wins for Trump. Unless and until you start seeing Trump starting to get 47, 48, 49, consistently, at least close to that range, unless and until that happens, Hillary is still by far the prohibitive favorite. That doesn't mean she's going to win in a blowout. It just means... She's going to win unless and until that happens, and there's no sign that it is. So that's why, as of this date, I'm still going with Hillary at 90%, but I'm giving 10% 10 chance for Trump because he has set the predicate for, you know, if we get attacked by a homegrown illegal immigrant terrorist attack, he's probably going to win. If she she has a a moment at the debates and they can make her health an issue, he's got a chance. But something's got to happen to change the trajectory. The trajectory is not currently changed. All right, when we come back, uh, we've got to get to some news involving uh, our nation's colleges and those special snowflakes and free speech issues. On the oh, and, and my alma mater, Georgetown University, giving Which slave giving reparations. reparations. So, got to talk about this. Coming up next on the John and Leah Show. Welcome back. This is the John and Leah show. My name is John Ziegler. My co-host is Leah Brandon, who is gamefully hanging in there despite being extremely sick, uh, which we appreciate. Only about uh, 35 minutes left to go, Leah, so you hang in there. Uh, I want to talk about a couple of issues related to colleges, and they're all somewhat related. And college, of course, along with schools across the country getting back in session is We celebrate this uh, Labor Day weekend. My alma mater is Georgetown University. And this week, Georgetown made an extraordinary announcement. They announced that, and I have no idea how they're going to do this, that if you are a descendant of one of the 200 or so slaves 
that Georgetown sold back in 1838 that you will be provided an advantage in admissions to the Georgetown University School of Your Choice. Now, as someone who is the product of a marriage that occurred because my parents met at Georgetown, they both graduated at Georgetown, I'm the first of four siblings to go to Georgetown. My father was on the head of the, was actually the head of the committee that chose the current president of Georgetown, a guy by the name of Jack DeJoya, who I've met numerous times, and I know he's very afraid of me whenever I come to talk to him. He tries to run away because he knows I'm going to have some complaint that no one else is going to provide him in a way that no one else has the balls to articulate and that I'm usually right. I also have been up until this week an alumni interviewer. For the last several years, I have interviewed students, seniors in in high school, as they are trying to gain admission into Georgetown, which is a highly, highly competitive school, although it really shouldn't be. I think it's overrated in my view. And uh, this week I decided in reaction to this announcement that I am no longer going to be an alumni interviewer. I wrote a column about this, which you can read at freespeechbroadcasting.com. This is all because, Leah, some Black Lives Matter people last year sat in in our president's office and demanded because everybody else, remember last year, the Black Lives Matter craze. Oh, yeah. And, you have to give in or else you lose your job. Right. And so so I don't know how many, probably a dozen people sat in his office and they raised the issue of the fact that a couple of buildings at Georgetown were named for the two past presidents, long past presidents, who had facilitated the sale of the slaves back in 1838. Now, without the sale of the slaves, the record shows Georgetown probably doesn't exist today, almost certainly, because the, the university was in financial ruin. So these guys, these back in 1838, they do something that is completely different than it's perceived today. I mean, slavery back... And by the way, legal. Right, totally legal, <laughs> and, and, and not in any way, shape, or form, the act that we would consider slavery, slavery to be today. So they get their names taken off the buildings now, replaced by one of the slaves that they sold and some black professor. They're going to put up a statue for the slaves. But the most bizarre part is this reparations, where how in the world do you possibly determine seven, eight, nine generations later? There might be thousands of people who can claim to be descendants from these 200 or so slaves from 1838. How in the world do you possibly identify these people? And then how, how, on what basis? 40 acres and a mule. Well, well, that's the philosophy, but this is, this is seven, eight generations later, at least it's ripe for fraud because, of course, because I guarantee you, they're not going to turn them down. Exactly. Because, because if you turn someone down who claimed to be the descendant of a slave, all they have to do is go to the Washington Post. The Washington Post does an article about it, and our liberal president is going to cave like a cheap suit and immediately you know, fire probably somebody in the admissions office who didn't uh, sign off on this person getting the extra benefit of being a slave descendant. Now, there are bigger, more philosophical problems with this, which I'll get to. When we come back on the John and Leah Show, our website where you can check out that column I wrote is freespeechbroadcasting.com. This is the Free Speech Broadcasting Network. 
Welcome back. This is the John and Leah Show. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. My name is John Ziegler. My host is Leah Brandon. With the Rocky music, thinking of the people in uh, Philadelphia with the hurricane coming uh, across shore, apparently, uh, tonight and tomorrow. Hope everybody's okay there. Unfortunately, the Labor Day weekend at the shore has been destroyed, but uh, hopefully everyone will be safe. Uh, Lots to talk about in the final two segments of this program. I want to finish up on the issue of Georgetown University, my alma mater, giving effectively reparations to the very, very distant descendants of slaves. And, Leah, as we already mentioned, there's a couple of major logistical problems here. How in the world do you determine who is eligible? How do you even conceivably prove seven, eight, nine generations before they had a a slave uh, from which they descended? It's it's absolutely going to have fraud. And this is a lot like illegal immigration. We talk about this all the time, where the rules that you make are nothing like the reality. Because once you open the door just a little bit, there's no going back. Because right. not only not only can anybody who is remotely black, because, my gosh, seven, eight generations, you could be white and claim you're a slave descendant for all intents and purposes. Uh, You know, look at Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson. But I digress. The point is that there's no way to determine who is actually eligible. Once they apply, the, the people making the decisions are all super liberals. That's what academia is made of. And I know this. I, I was part of this process. They're all ultra liberals, and they're also terrified of negative publicity. So of course they're going to say, oh, "Okay, you're you're a descendant of a slave," and they're going to be terrified of rejecting them, even though it's not supposed to be automatic admission. It's just supposed to be preferential treatment. Well, what does that mean? Automatic admission. It makes effectively automatic admission. And by the way. The Black Lives Matter people were actually complaining that this didn't go far enough because it they didn't, want money. They wanted money, and there's no direct scholarship. And I laughed at that because I'm thinking there is no chance that a slave descendant who gets into Georgetown, who almost assuredly is going to be black, presumably isn't going to be super rich, and gets in under that designation, is not going to be handed a boatload of financial aid. Because that's, right. that's the way it works. That's the way the system works now. So they don't need to say they're going to give you the scholarship. That might piss off it's, some. It's implied. Right. Exactly. Exactly. See, this is this is they're, they're having it both ways. The public stance is, well, this is just about admissions, not about aid. Bullcrap. Ha. Bullcrap. This is going to be a free ride because that's this the way. This is very similar to your Penn State situation. Thank you, which is where we're going next. It's very similar. I know the way these people work, and, and and it's it's aggravating beyond comprehension, even if this wasn't my alma mater. And again, I've written about this in, in a column you can read at freespeechbroadcasting.com. But here's why this matters in the big picture. This sets an incredibly dangerous precedent. Even though Georgetown is a private school, if it was public, this would be an even bigger deal. 
but it is a perceived prestigious university. And these things, these precedents matter. And this, once you start going down this path, there's no going back. There is no, this is the slipperiest slope that there is. It's so slippery that I laugh and I wrote about this in the column and I, I almost hesitate to even talk about it publicly, but it's, it's almost one o'clock in the morning in, in DC right now. So I don't know how many, how many news media people are listening or how many black lives matter people are listening, but you know, they really missed the boat. The, the easiest way to really screw Georgetown on this whole slave issue. Now that you got them on the ropes, our colors are blue and gray. The colors are oh. <laughs> the colors are directly, directly related to the Civil War because yes. Georgetown had students that went to the north and to the south. And when they came back out of the Civil War, we honored them by changing our colors to blue and gray. Our gray literally is a tribute to members of the Confederate Army. <laughs> now, if if Black Lives Matter figures that out. Our university will change all our sports colors to all black by the end of the week. I can guarantee you that. Uh, I am amazed that hasn't happened yet because that one's actually a layup. I mean, if they can get they can get slave reparations eight generations later, blue and gray—that's easy. I mean, look what happened that in you know with the South Carolina battle flag. All right, now there is some good news on the academic front, and it deals with this whole issue of political correctness. Uh, we referenced this last week, and it's the University of Chicago bucking an enormous trend with regard to free speech and lack thereof on college campuses. This is from the Chicago Tribune, and I just had to revisit it because it's just so juicy. They write, University of Chicago class of 2020, get ready for a college experience filled with, get this, debate, discussion, and possibly discomfort. Wow. (laughs) Imagine that. As colleges across the country wrestle with balancing academic freedom and open discourse with student health and safety. Health? Which is stupid. (laughs) University of Chicago Dean of Students John Ellison told incoming freshmen in a letter that what they should expect on campus, saying, quote, our commitment to academic freedom means that we do not support so-called trigger warnings. (laughs) Which is one of the more bizarre phrases ever created. It really is. What it's the, very ironic. What the Why hell would is, you say a trigger? Right. By the way, isn't that politically incorrect as it is? I mean, trigger, totally. Trigger implies gun, right? So, so-called yeah. trigger warnings. We do not cancel invited speakers because their topics might prove controversial. <gasps> Even if you don't hear it. <laughs> and we do. Yeah by, the, yeah. by the way, what they're really saying there is we just don't invite them to begin with. We're we're smart enough to realize you don't invite a controversial speaker. That way you don't have to cancel them. But I digress. Back to the letter. And we do not condone the creation of intellectual safe spaces, another bizarre phrase, where individuals can retreat from ideas and perspectives at odds with their own. It's amazing. What's unreal, as I know you're implying, is that that letter has to be sent out. Yes. That, that that letter, hey, by the way, you might hear some things that make you, you uncomfortable in a free speech society, in a college campus, which used to be a bastion of intellectual diversity, free speech, exchange of ideas. Uh-uh. Now, academia is the last place where you're allowed to have free speech, where you're allowed to exchange ideas without any fear of repercussion. Of course, what this really is is a way of, for liberals to impose 
censorship on conservatives. That's what that really is. Getting it down to brass tacks. This is a way for liberals to shut conservatives up. That's right. That's what it is. That's not an exaggeration. That's an hyperbole. That's a stone cold fact. I happen to have a um, brother-in-law who teaches at the University of Chicago. So I asked, you know, so what was this all about? And they, he told me that the, the rationale here is that they haven't had any controversies yet on this. And so therefore the administration felt like they had the political capital to go out and get ahead of this and just cut it off at the knees, which by the way, is a great way to do it because once you put that statement out, you've protected yourself. You, right. mo- most of these protests happen because of the give an inch, take a mile concept. If you never gave an inch, they'd go away. Sure they, they would. They'd they, go somewhere to like Missouri. Well, yeah, right. Which, by the way, my favorite football team every week this year will be whoever plays the University of Missouri and those special snowflakes. Them. And I was so pumped because – uh, West Virginia University kicked their ass. Missouri is 0-1, so my favorite team each week will be whoever plays Missouri uh, because that was the team that threatened to strike at the end of last year because they sucked and because yes. Black Lives Matter had basically taken over uh, the university. The poop swastika. Yeah, the poop swastika. All right. Um, speaking of all this, and you've referenced it, there was a major development in the Penn State story, the Joe Paterno story, which I have been embroiled in way, way too much for the last four years. I'm going to tell you the truth of what's really happening, and I'm going to tell you, Leah, something I'm not sure you're aware of that I've been working on with regard to this that you will not want to miss. That's in our final segment coming up next on the John and Leah Show. This is the final segment of this edition of the John and Leah Show. My name is John Ziegler. My co-host is Leah Brandon. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. That's where you can check out the podcast for each and every John and Leah Show. By the way, the audio has apparently been improved on our podcast. My guess is, though, the podcast for this show will not be available until Tuesday because of the Labor Day holiday. In this uh, final segment, I, I want to talk about a, a story that got a lot of play in the sports media and certainly in Pennsylvania where we're on in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, it's that Penn state university announced this week that in a couple of weeks, they will be honoring Joe Paterno, the deceased former head football coach at Penn state for his 50th and the 50th anniversary of his first win at Penn state in a game against temple. I don't know. And I don't think anybody does how big of a deal this is actually going to be, but the news media because it's Joe Paterno, decided that they were going to go ape crap crazy over the prospect of Joe Paterno, who they see wrongly as a pedophile protector, uh, being honored in any substantial way. And the, the reaction was typically insane, irrational, ignorant. And the reason I know this is because for the last four plus years, I have unfortunately gotten as deep into this case as anyone could ever possibly imagine. It has been both the best work of my life and the dumbest thing that I have ever done. I mean, that's the world we live in now, where the best work I've ever done is actually the stupidest thing that I've ever gotten involved with. It has yeah. it has negatively impacted every single aspect of my life. Yes. 
in every possible way to, to the to the hair on my head becoming more gray, my belly being bigger, my nerves being shot, my golf game going to crap, my marriage going to crap. My Everything. Re- every, because my view of humanity had, was already bad, as you know, Leah, uh, is beyond the toilet because of what I have seen in this case. Here's the bottom line. And if you want the details, go to my website, framingpaterno.com. It's figurative, not literal. It's not a conspiracy theory. But here's, here's the deal here. The reason why the news media has gone so bananas over this is that they think that recent headlines that you may recall from a couple months ago indicated that, you know, Joe Paterno knew about this Jerry Sandusky story for 40 years nope. and, and never said a thing. He he enabled him. He not only enabled him, he, he led a massive cover-up. This is a, a horrible person. No, 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 no. He, here's, what, here's what we have with the news media on this story, folks. This is the best metaphor I can come up with. I think you'll agree, Leah. Five years ago when this thing broke, the news media was about a four- or five-year-old learning about Santa Claus, and they bought in. Oh, my God, did they buy in to this fairy tale because the Santa Claus story is irresistible to a four- or five-year-old. Yeah. And then something happened over the four- or five-year since. Nothing made sense. Like, a, like an eight- or nine-year-old, they started to think, wait a minute, how could— that Santa I saw this year seemed different than the Santa I saw last year. And and why does the handwriting on all the gifts that Santa brings the same as the handwriting that mom and dad get? This doesn't really make sense, but they desperately want to hold on to the Santa Claus story because it's so good for them. And so on Christmas morning, they find some half-eaten cookies and a glass of milk that's half drank. And they go, aha! Whoa, we knew it all along. There, there really is a Santa Claus. And the half-eaten cookies and the, 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 the milk that's half-drinking, that's the settlement stories that came out a couple of months ago. These stories that Penn State had paid $93 million to these accusers of Jerry Sandusky, a couple, of which, a couple of which had indicted Joe Paterno back in the 1970s, specifically 1971 and 1976, in stories that are utterly preposterous on their face in every possible way, which I don't have time to explore why. Again, go to framingpaterno.com. But so these stories, they provide the half-eaten cookies and the milk that the eight or nine-year-old who's now suspicious that Santa Claus doesn't really exist, the media I'm talking about here, that provided them with the ultimate proof that Santa Claus really does exist, that Joe Paterno really was a fraud, that after having lived 61 or having a 61 year career at Penn State he really wasn't the great guy that everyone said the, the guy so who fo- ridiculous. followed all the rules he was a horrible child molester protector enabler cover up instigator all right now i know this is a lie i know exactly how this happened i know the whole case is upside down because i know more about the case than jerry sandusky does and jerry sandusky would be the first person to tell you that I don't I, I, believe me, as I've already said, I'm not proud of it. It's it's destroyed my life. But let me tell you the ultimate example, Lee, and I'm not even sure you're aware of this, of how I know that those half-eaten cookies were eaten simply by people who were hungry for cookies. Because one of the cookie eaters was planted by me. 
one of the cookie eaters? Yes. Though one of those who has claimed to be an accuser of Jerry Sandusky in the Penn State settlement process, who okay. went to the most prominent attorney in the whole case, is a guy I helped purposely plant as a fake accuser. Did he get paid? I can't get into that right now. Okay, I'm just checking. So I had, I had a guy come to me who was a member of the Second Mile Charity who knew Jerry Zandowski to be innocent, who knew that the whole thing was a scam, who had been to the trial, was friends with the Sandusky family for a long time, and said, what do I do? I said, well, why don't you go to this particular attorney, and why don't you tell him you were abused, and let's see what happens. Well, guess what happened? He was not only believed, he was embraced, he was manipulated, he was sent to a therapist who talked to him about Repressed memory therapy, which isn't even a thing. His story, his story got changed on purpose so that it would Whoa. be so that it would be more uh, amenable. Salacious. Hold on a second; it gets better. The story was changed on purpose so that it would be more acceptable to Penn State in a settlement because the lawyer knows exactly what Penn State wanted, which is why Penn, Joe Paterno got implicated in those 1970s stories because the only way the old-timers were going to get paid way outside the statute of limitations is if they indicted Joe Paterno because otherwise they were going to go tell him, pound sand, you're not a member of the charity. You didn't, this, didn't, this didn't happen within the statute of limitations. Oh, wait a minute. You're indicting Joe Paterno. Okay, let's get the checkbook out, uh, let, and we're going to pay you. And by the way, in the agreement, when we give you the money, we're going to say we are not verifying the validity of your claims. I have the documents that prove that. Whoa. I also, this fake accuser that came to me that wanted to be planted, taped everything. I've I've got hours and hours of tapes of the most prominent attorney in the case manipulating and believing a totally, completely fake accuser, along with the therapist doing the same thing. Now, imagine my frustration when... These bogus settlements are the reason why the news media to this day is vilifying a dead man who did nothing wrong. Nothing. Not, nothing but, but be involved in the biggest perfect storm clusterfuck of academic cowardice and stupidity that has ever happened in the modern history of humanity. That's yeah, what true. that's what this story was. It had nothing to do with protecting a pedophile. It had to do with a domino effect that the media created, facilitated, maintained for their own benefit. Their I own. mean, it was a tornado and, of what, media. Well, and that's what happened. The original, this whole story flips, for those that don't understand or remember it. In November of 2011, it flips because Penn State, in the middle of a media firestorm, panics. When Joe Paterno's last home game is going to be broadcast live on ESPN against Nebraska, and ESPN is going to portray that as a pep rally for a pedophile protector, and all these people in Penn State are going, oh, my God, we can't possibly have this. Stop it, stop it. Fire Paterno over his cell phone. Well, once that happens, everybody presumes that everybody's got to be guilty, including, by the way, Jerry Sandusky. I presumed 
that that's the way the whole thing had to go down until I investigated it. And every single thing I found was upside down. And this fake accuser is the ultimate proof. In any other case, this would blow it wide open. But the media has encased this one in a nuclear bomb shelter that couldn't possibly bring it down. So I don't know whether the public will ever know fully about this fake accuser. But I just told you because it's the truth. And Joe Paterno deserves to be honored. And we'll see what happens in a couple of weeks, whether Penn State actually does it. Leah, thanks for hanging in despite your, you betcha. your bad health. We'll talk to you next week. I appreciate it as always. Sounds good. Until next week. So long, everybody. My name is John Ziegler. Website, freespeechbroadcasting.com and framingpaterno.com.